Find Hebrews chapter 4 in your copy of the scripture, please. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to be looking this morning at the title, Our Great High Priest. Hebrews chapter 4, Our Great High Priest. Our text is going to begin in verse 14. But this morning, just for the sake of continuity with last time we were together, I want to back up to verse 11. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Our great high priest, the writer of Hebrews, says in verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's talking there, of course, about those in the Old Testament that were in the company of believers. They were in the company of those who left Egypt, went through the wilderness wanderings, but they did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. Can you be in the company of God's people and not actually be one of God's people? Yes, absolutely. And so he's saying, let's strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, thank you for your word and for the way your Holy Spirit takes your word and ministers to our lives. First of all, bringing conviction of sin and salvation And then for those who are saved, it brings maturity. We thank you for that ministry. And Lord, as we come before you, we're grateful that Jesus is our advocate before the Father. He's our Savior, our Lord, our Shepherd. He's the Good Shepherd. But he's our advocate and our high priest who represents us before your throne. And therefore we're told to come before your throne with boldness, with confidence, with assurance. We're grateful for that. And Lord, we want to do that today, this week, every week. That we would come boldly before your throne. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let me uh, begin by giving you a little walk back through history. More recent history in the country. Very tragic history. 
24 years ago this past summer, O.J. Simpson led police in a low-speed chase on a Los Angeles freeway in the now infamous white Ford Bronco owned by his friend Al Callings. Simpson had been a person of interest in the, in the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ron Goldman. The nation watched as the former Buffalo Bills running back led police on a 75-mile chase on Interstate 405. CBS News reports that an estimated 95 million people across the country watched that low-speed chase. Put it in perspective, about 110 million watched the Super Bowl each year. 95 million people across the country watched some or all of that car chase. Simpson and Al Cowling surrendered in Simpson's driveway almost two hours after the chase began. Now Simpson was acquitted in the criminal trial, of course, in the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. He was later found guilty in the civil trial being ordered to pay more than $33 million to the victims' families. Back in October 2017, Simpson was released from jail. He'd been serving nine years behind bars for an armed robbery in Las Vegas. The infamous Bronco is currently on display at Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Al Callens has been offered as much as $275,000 for the vehicle, the second most viewed automobile in history behind the limousine that JFK was shot in in Dallas, Texas. Now the OJ trial showed two great divides with the American public. The first divide was a racial divide. Most African Americans who even thought he was guilty were glad to see that a black man could be found not guilty in a court of law. But the second divide and what may have been the bigger divide is the economic divide. We see from that trial that if you can afford a legal dream team, you tend to fare much better in our legal justice system. Folks, what's the old saying when it comes to the courtroom? The person who tries to defend themselves has a fool for a client. Isn't it amazing, though, how people will hire the best defense attorney that they can afford to represent them in an earthly court of law and yet before the heavenly court, before the judgment seat of Christ, they think that they can somehow or another represent themselves. How utterly foolish. 
The writer of Hebrews shows us in this passage that as Christians, Jesus Christ is our advocate before the Father. He is our high priest who faithfully represents us. And if Jesus Christ represents you, you will not fail because he does not fail. Because Jesus Christ is our faithful high priest, we are to hold the confession of our faith boldly with great confidence that he understands our weaknesses and will help us in our time of need. Now we're going to see how this impacts our confession of faith. How it impacts our understanding. And how it impacts our prayer life. Let's look at those three things. First of all, if you're taking notes this morning, the fact that Christ is our high priest impacts our confession of faith. The fact that Christ is our high priest impacts our confession of faith. In verse 14 he says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now having pointed out that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels and greater than Moses and greater than Joshua, the writer points out here that Jesus is also superior to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Now folks, this is a passage that has been recognized to parallel Hebrews chapter 10, those verses that Jonathan read a moment ago. I want to read those again because it's a parallel passage. In chapter 10, the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh... And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. A parallel passage to our passage this morning. Now, also let me say that as you read the book of Hebrews, if you will keep in mind that the, that the writer is comparing and contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. Showing that what we have in Jesus is far better. In fact, Jesus is what the entire old covenant pointed to. And so as you read the book of Hebrews, through all the comparisons that he gives, through all of the illustrations and analogies, if you can keep in mind that he's comparing and contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant and what we have in Jesus is better, that will help keep you out of the deep weeds as you read the book of Hebrews. So Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the Old Testament priesthood. So forth and so on. He's going to continue with all of those analogies. Also you need to keep in mind that the rich theology of the book of Hebrews is designed to show us the seriousness 
of rejecting Christ. And so the theology helps to serve the purposes of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The warning passages are deeply pastoral. The writer is focused on the pastoral theme of helping his people grow in their Christian faith. And the warning passages support that. They are warned that because Christ was the focal point of the old covenant, therefore what they have in Christ and what we have in Christ is better. And if Christ is what the entire Bible, if he's the one that the whole Bible is about and what we have in him is better, then you better not turn away from faith in Jesus. To turn away from faith in Jesus leaves one without a sacrifice for sin and without a representative before God. And so to be in that position leaves one utterly helpless and hopeless. If you are without Christ, you are helpless and hopeless before the judgment bar of God. And so the goal is pastoral. All of the theology, all of the passages support that goal. Now back to the point we started with. I want you to remember the disciples receiving the great commission from Jesus back in Acts chapter 1. You may want to turn back with me to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in in verse 8. And I I want you to listen to what, what the disciples are told. Jesus said there in a well-known verse, he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, now underscore this, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so we're told that while the disciples were looking on, Jesus was taking taken up away from them in what we call the ascension. Now, as you think about that, think of the phrase that's used here or the word that's used here in the plural, heavens. Heavens. Jesus passed through the heavens. Now, sometimes what's meant is that you have the heavens above where the birds fly. And then above that, you have the atmospheric heavens. Where the moon and the stars and the planets are. And then you have heaven being referred to as the place where God dwells. Where his throne is. Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that he was taken up to the 
third heaven. And that's what's meant. Paul was transported into the very presence of God. Now I want you to think about the contrast being pointed out here. In the Old Testament, the Levitical high priest one day a year passed from the sight of the people and went into the Holy of Holies bearing the blood of the atonement. But even before the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, he had to first of all offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And then when he entered the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the atoning blood on behalf of the people, he could only stay momentarily. In fact, bales were sewn into the the hem of his robe so that the people outside could hear him moving around and thus they would know that God had not struck him dead. His entrance into the Holy of Holies was through three portals. First, he bore the blood through the door into the outer uh, court. Secondly, he entered another door into the holy place. And thirdly, he entered through the veil of the Holy of Holies. And he had to do this year after year. Now contrast this to what the writer of Hebrews He's telling us about the Lord Jesus. Jesus, our great high priest, after his once for all sacrifice for sins on the cross, passed through the heavens, through the sky above, through the atmosphere, into the very presence of God. And in the presence of God, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down. Something the Old Testament high priest could never do in the Holy of Holies. Signifying Christ's work of redemption is done. And because his work of redemption is done and there is no longer any other sacrifice for sins, he sat down. But the New Testament says when it comes to his interceding for us, He's standing. So as far as his work of redemption, he sat down. It's complete. As far as his intercession, it's ongoing. He stands. Now what's his point here to them? His point is, don't look back to the old covenant. Because what you have in Jesus Christ is better. In fact, now that Christ has come, the old covenant is obsolete. God is not even dealing with people anymore on the basis of the old covenant. And so he says as a result of this, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He uses the hortatory subjunctive. And I can promise you as a family, you use the hortatory subjunctive all the time. In fact, you did this morning, a lot of you. What some of you parents say, let's go. Come on. 
Let's go. Hurry, let's hurry up. Let us, let us get in the car and be on our way so we won't be late. Let us. The hortatory subjunctive. Let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Let us hold fast our confession in Christ. What confession is he speaking of? Our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now you see what he's saying, ladies and gentlemen. In hard times, in times of testing, in times of trials, do not forsake your confession of faith in Christ. Hold fast your confession in Christ. He is the only one who's gone through the heavens and has sat down as far as having done everything needed for our redemption. You're going to have trials. You're going to have trials and tribulation. We fall into trials and tribulations all the time like the man on the road to Jericho. Remember what in Jesus' parable? The thieves beat the man, stripped him and left him for dead? James plays off that same language in James chapter 1, what the text Kevin preached last week, that we all experience many different trials of all shapes and colors. Life is dotted with trials, and we don't ask for them. We fall into them. Just like that man on the road to Jericho fell among thieves. We fall into them. And what do trials have a way of doing? They beat us up and leave us for half dead, right? Trials are tough. Trials are hard. Nobody asks for trials. Nobody invites them. It's hard to experience them. It's been well said that everybody is either going into a trial or they're in the midst of a trial now or they're coming out of a trial. They're going into one, they're already in one, they're coming out of one. And in the midst of trials and hardships, he's saying to them, hold fast to your confession of faith in Christ. As Martin Luther said in the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he said in in one of the stanzas, because the right man is on our side. Amen? You're not promised freedom from hardship. You are promised forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so why in the world would you want to experience hardship and trial on earth and then die and go to hell? You die and go to hell without Jesus Christ. And you think the hardship and trial and suffering was hard on earth? Pardon the grammar, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, it's easy to confess Christ when life is easy. He's talking about confessing Christ when your life is at its most difficult. Can you do that? Those persecuted believers I spoke of in North Korea. If you went through something like they're going through, could you hold fast your confession of faith in Christ? Or would you just say, no, Christianity's not worth it? What would you do? 
He's saying in the midst of life's trials and tribulations and hardships and sufferings, hold fast to what you have in Jesus Christ. Yes, this world is hard. Yes, life is tough. But we have redemption in Jesus Christ. And one of these days, the night is going to be over and it's going to be day. Second thing he points out, the fact that Christ is our high priest impacts our understanding of who he is. It impacts our understanding of who he is. He says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The ancient Stoics believed that the primary attribute of God was apatheia. Apatheia. You hear our word apathy in that. They thought that was the, the primary attribute of God. That God was apathetic. He was unconcerned. He was uncaring. He had an an inability to feel anything at all about what we go through. The Epicureans believe that God dwelt in the intermedia. In other words, God lives in a dimension between the worlds, between earth and heaven. And and what that means, they said, is that God is in a place completely detached. He's untouchable. Untouchable in a place where nobody can get to him. And uncaring. Now this was some of the Greek philosophies behind the culture that the early Christians faced. Untouchable, uncaring. Is that what the Bible says about God? Is that what's revealed us in scripture? No. God in the Old Testament even helped us to see that he's not only transcendent other than us, removed, but he's also imminent. He is with us. And Jesus went so far as to describe God as our father. He used a term, a very intimate, casual term for father, Abba, Daddy, close, intimate. Personal. In Isaiah 14, we're told that the virgin will be with child and and will give birth to a son, and you are to call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What am I saying? I'm saying the Bible everywhere reveals that, that God is with us. He's involved with us in life. He has compassion for us. Matthew 9 says that the Lord Jesus, as, as he saw all these multitudes coming out on the hills around Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, he was moved, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We're even told in the Bible that one of the purposes in the incarnation is so that Jesus would fully understand our weaknesses. As deity, 
as God, as deity. He represents us. He, or, uh, he represents God to us. As human, he represents us to God. Which is it? Deity or humanity? Which is it? It's both. Fully God, fully man. Theologians call it the hypostatic union. Two natures in one essence. Two natures in one essence. As a man, Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. He needed rest. He grew weary. On and on we can go with that. Because of the incarnation, he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. Now in heaven, he continues as the God-man. He is eternally... Deity and humanity before the Father. He's not ceased to be fully man. He is before the Father as our high priest. And he is fully God and fully man. Because of his humanity, he doesn't simply understand our humanity theoretically. He understands it experientially. He's walked in our shoes. The writer points out here that he sympathizes with us. That's a word that means to share in the experience of another. He shared in our experiences. Flesh and blood experiences. He was even tested. He was even tempted as we are yet without sin. Now we could talk a a whole message on this. And and I promise regardless of what I'm about to say. I promise I'm not going to get in the deep weeds over this. You can't. I can help you if you want to get in the deep weeds about this. But we could talk for a whole message. About the peccability and the impeccability of Christ. Have you ever heard those terms? The peccability and impeccability of Christ. That's a discussion that refers to the temptations of Christ. Could Christ have actually sinned? That's peccability. Impeccability means that though tempted, he could not have sinned. One of your Baptist theologians, Millard Erickson, holds to a moderating position saying as humanity, he could have sinned as deity, he would not. I'm not sure that's a strong enough statement that he could have, but he would not. You you see, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that if Jesus had sinned, such would have involved both his human and divine natures and that would lead to the logical conclusion that God himself would have sinned which is impossible due to his nature and attributes revealed in scripture 
Theologian Wayne Gruden summed it up well. He said, therefore, if we are asking if it was actually possible for Jesus to have sinned, it seems that we must conclude that it was not possible. The union of his human and divine natures in one person prevented it. Now, folks, I want you to think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Since Jesus was fully human, he knows what your weaknesses are like. He knows your strengths, but not just your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your weaknesses, again, not just simply theoretically, like in a textbook. He knows them experientially. Because he walked those dusty roads around Palestine. He knows your temptations. He was tempted. First John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John seems to summarize all of sin up into one of those three categories. And Jesus knows all about those temptations. And yet... He never sinned. Had your high priest sinned, he could have never offered an eternal sacrifice for sin that never had to be redone. In your own trials and temptations, you need to know that you have one who sympathizes with you. He understands But because he never sinned, he's able to lead you through that temptation and out to the other side. He's not cold. He's not aloof. He's not uncaring. What troubles your heart this morning? He knows all about it and he cares. He's not a a hard nose, as they say. He understands. And again, as Martin Luther said in that hymn, the right man is on your side. You're not alone. You're not alone. You may feel all alone in the world. You're not alone. God's with you because the incarnation, He's with you in the most special of ways. You remember when Jesus ascended to the Father, who did He say He would send? The Holy Spirit. He's with you in the most personal and powerful of ways. You're not alone. He cares. Thirdly and quickly, I want you to see the fact that Christ is our high priest impacts our prayer life. It impacts our prayer life. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Using that hortatory subjunctive again like some of you who said let us get going this morning. He says... Let us, 
Let us with confidence draw near. Think of that. With confidence. There, there, there's, there's, there's certainly no thought of disrespect intended here. He's simply saying that because of Jesus Christ, we can go boldly into the presence of God. Think of that. Boldly into the presence of God. You see, it's not a confidence in who we are or what we've done because there would be no confidence there, but our confidence before God is none other than Jesus Christ. Our confidence is because of Him. The person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, with confidence let us go boldly before the throne of grace. One of the Protestant reformers said that if we were only to talk about God's throne, then there, that would be a naked majesty a raw majesty about it that would simply overwhelm us and overpower us. But he said there's a new name given here to God's throne. What is it? It is the throne of grace. And folks, that one word makes all the difference. Amen? It's a throne of grace. As he points out here, when we come before that throne of grace, what do we receive? We receive mercy and we find grace. And finally he points out here that we receive mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. That's the best English translations uh, seem to be able to do with it. The word literally means we find mercy and grace that is appropriate to the time and appropriate to the need. Think of that. When you're facing trials, when you're facing temptations because of Jesus, you can come confidently before God's throne knowing that because of the humanity of Jesus, He understands your weaknesses, He understands your temptations, He'll give you mercy and grace that is appropriate To the very situation that you are going through at that moment. Amen. Exactly what you need in that moment. That is true to that situation and that time in your life. He is saying that's what you get at the throne of grace. Remember, this is, this is the word of the Lord. The word that in the previous verses we saw was a double-edged sword. It's God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And he's saying that because of Jesus Christ, you will not simply find fear and judgment at God's throne. Now that's all that the unbeliever will experience. Because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And our God is a consuming fire. At the throne of grace, the unbeliever doesn't find that mercy and grace. 
There's nothing but fear and judgment. But as a child of God through faith in Jesus, you'll find understanding. You'll find sympathy. You will find mercy and grace to help you that is more than equal to that very situation that you're going through. That's good news. Are you going through a time of testing or a time of trial? Or a time of temptation? Hold fast to your confession of faith in Christ. Do not waver. Christ has passed through the heavens and he's there at the throne of God. He is the only one who can help you. As you turn to him, know that he understands everything about your hardship. He knows everything about your trial. He knows everything about your temptation. He's been here on this earth and experienced the same thing. So he's not cold and aloof and removed. He knows by experience the difficulties you face in the flesh. Yet... He never sinned once. And so what does this make Jesus Christ? Back to our opening illustration. Before God, what is Jesus Christ? He's our advocate. He's our defense attorney. He's a dream team like no other. Amen? Go to Him confidently. Go to Him confidently. God is a God of mercy and grace. Go to Him confidently through Jesus Christ. Now again, if you're not in Christ, you do not have this one to represent you. You're on your own. And you are not going to be able to defend yourself. But if you're in Christ, you have all the help you need. The right man is on your side.